0: Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Look into your own heart and see whether there are any Negative emotions to be found such as anger Dislike resentment rejection worry fear Upset anxiety anything that strikes you as giving you difficulty. Find it and then let it float away like a black cloud in the sky being dispersed by the wind. That's all these emotions are black clouds. Now look into your heart again, and see whether there's a wide open space that you can fill with love. Fill it with love, fill it with contentment, and appreciation of your own efforts. And let those feelings permeate you from head to toe. Now let the feelings of love and appreciation reach out to the person sitting nearest you Filling him or her from head to toe with those feelings Appreciation of that person's efforts and a loving feeling towards him or her as a companion on the path And now let the feelings of love and appreciation reach out to everyone here, filling everyone with them, embracing everyone with them, appreciating everyone's efforts, loving everyone as a companion and a support on one's own path. now think of your parents. Fill them with your appreciation for all the things they've done for you. Reach out to them with the love from your heart as your gift to them. Think of those people who are nearest and dearest to you fill them with your love surround them with your appreciation for all the efforts they're making without expecting to have the same given to you in return now think of all your good friends fill them with love embrace them with appreciation appreciating that there are your friends appreciating their good qualities Now think of all the people you meet in your everyday life. Colleagues at work, customers, salespeople. People you meet on the street, in the offices, the airport, in the bus. Let as many as you can arise before your mind's eye. Make them really a part of your life by filling them with your love and embracing them with appreciation for all the efforts they're making in their lives. Think of anyone in your life with whom you might have difficulties, controversies, difficulty to get along, preventment, or if there is no such person, anyone towards whom you are quite indifferent. And don't let that (coughs) be a blockage in your own heart. Reach out with love and appreciation to that person too, thinking of his or her good quality, appreciating those qualities, letting your love flow without impediment. Now open your heart as wide as you can and let love and appreciation for others flow out of it reaching people near and far. First to those who live around here. Let the love and the appreciation flow like a golden river It touches people's hearts, and then further and further afield, as far as the strength of your heart will reach. Think of all the people in your hometown and let your love and appreciation flow to as many of them as you can think of, filling their hearts with the warmth of your love. Put your attention back on yourself and feel the contentment that comes from loving and giving and the joy that comes from appreciating others fill yourself with joy and contentment That permeate you from head to toe and surround you May there be love and appreciation in all beings' hearts. The discourse I have chosen for the beginning of our entry into the Buddhist teaching is one of the most important ones. It's called the in English, the Great Discourse on Causation. In Pali it's a Maha Nidana Sutta. Now the word Sutta literally translated means thread. It's the thread that's on which the pearls of the Buddha's wisdom are threaded. So we use the word discourse, of course, for it, and that's the meaning of it also. And the word sutta is only used in this tradition for the discourses the Buddha himself has given and the great disciples, and which were then written down in the Pali canon. So if I tell you something, it's not a discourse, it's just a Dhamma talk. But what the Buddha gave, those were suttas. And maha means great. And it's very often used to mean that the discourse is long, because he has given discourses on the same topic on several occasions, and sometimes it would have been longer or shorter. But in this particular one the meaning is not only that it's long, which it is, comparatively long, but also that it is extremely important and very profound. And the word Nidana means source, and the word source not as um, necessarily where everything arises from, but as causation, the cause. But since there's another word in Pali which means cause, there here it is translated as causation, which is then the great discourse on causation, which is the, a good translation for what we are about to study. The word causation means cause and effect. And the Buddha's teaching is often called the teaching of cause and effect. And when we get into this and understand it a little, we will see that that puts it on an impersonal basis. Causes have effect. And the new effect is a new cause. And it makes our understanding easier, but it also gives us a reason to be careful. So the causation means cause and effect. And we can say without any doubt that this is the essence of the teaching. The essence of the teaching which leads us from where we are now with our viewpoints out into complete liberation. The Buddha himself said, He who sees dependent arising sees the Dhamma. He who sees Dhamma sees dependent arising. Cause and effect is often called dependent arising. All effects arise dependent on a cause. And even though that sounds completely simple and almost oversimplified, you will see very soon that nobody pays any attention to that. All causes have effects. And as we have that, is it's often called, dependerizing. Now, dependerizing, the Buddha says, he who sees that sees the Dhamma. The Dhamma, the teaching, the law, the law of nature, the truth. All of those words. And seeing, of course, does not mean the physical eye. It means the in-seeing. Having that inner realization, it doesn't have to be anything that is visual. The word seeing is, in our idea, mostly connected to something visual. This is not visual at all. Dependent arising is that what we see within us as our cause for being. So by is said by the Buddha to be the essence of the Dhamma. And if we see the Dhamma, the truth, law of nature, if we see that, the law, then we will see dependerizing. So he himself puts it down as that which makes us understand. And this understanding can be divided into two aspects. These two aspects are, first of all, we understand the nature of our own being. We understand how we came about. How did it happen that we're here? I'm sure people do think about that when they have a little extra time. How did I come to be around this time? What what am I doing here, actually? Why did this happen? What made me happen in a particular place at a particular time, with particular parents, and particular disabilities, and particular abilities? How did this all come about? And that kind of question cannot be answered on a worldly level and on a logical level. It's totally illogical on a worldly level. But on a spiritual level, it all makes complete sense. And it is dependent arising. So we first have that aspect of it, the nature of our own being. Not only why we came, but also the nature of it, how we are now. So that's answered through dependent arising. And the second aspect that is answered is that although we can see ourselves the way we are and understand that, it's not totally satisfying. There is something That isn't quite all right. There is that niggling feeling inside. It could be better. Well, depend. arising shows us the way out of all difficulties. When we see the way out of all difficulties, we will see that we have to remove the cause and not the effect. And actually, that's what we're usually trying. We're trying to remove the effect but not the cause. But this will make it quite clear that it is, there's only one thing to do, and that's getting rid of the cause. But because that is, of course, not only difficult, but totally opposed to worldly thinking, it never occurs to anybody. That's what we have the Buddha's teaching for, that we can actually relate to that. It is also his enlightenment statement. The second and third noble truths actually are that statement of if we remove the cause, we will have complete freedom. The cause being, the second noble truth, is that the cause of all dukkha is craving. Anybody here doesn't know the word dukkha? Everybody knows the word and everybody knows what it feels like too. Huh? Okay. Now everybody has it. It's universal. So with that craving as our cause for it, there is then a third noble truth which says that if we remove that cause, there is no effect anymore. We don't have any, any dukkha at all, freedom. So that is the penderizing is an elaboration of those noble truths because the noble truths are very, very short statements. They are short statements that dukkha exists, that it only has one cause and that's craving, that it is possible to get rid of that craving and thereby have complete cessation of all dukkha and the fourth noble truth, the noble eightfold path all of them very short and not elaborated upon at the time of the Buddha's enlightenment statement. But in dependent arising, he himself says that he saw dependent arising and because of that made those statements of the Four Noble Truths. Now we'll get more detail on that as we go along on the Four Noble Truths. One of the things which is extremely important of, about this um, teaching of dependent is that it points constantly and directly at the ultimate goal of the teaching, at the ultimate goal of the practice, and that is no self. Now, it is a most difficult one to logically latch onto, and therefore I would suggest that one doesn't try because logically it doesn't make any sense. But from a standpoint of the reality which we can learn to see within ourselves that there is nothing happening except cause and effect, one can become imbued with that so that the feeling for that arises. Now the the goal and the essence of the teaching is to experience no self no matter how we call it, what kind of names we give it, it means that there is no substance, no individuality, that there are just phenomena. This particular teaching, the Manidana Sutta and all suttas, all discourses which concern themselves with dependent arising, point directly to that. And all the discussion in it all the thought projections in it are all going that way. Therefore, they're not that easy to understand because we have to constantly relate to the fact that the Buddha is teaching us the ultimate truth here, the absolute truth, and not just those also truths which are relative and which have also, also bearing upon our lives, such as loving-kindness and compassion, joy with others and equanimity, getting concentrated on the breath, having doing walking meditation, any of those are methods, methodology, in order to eventually be able to have an entry into the final truth. And the final truth shows us that there was nobody there having loving-kindness. <laughs> Now, the, all the footers um, uh, on depend arising concern themselves with cause and effect. This one is the most elaborate one on that subject and also a little different. But cause and effect is shown to be something specific, not just something happens, something else happens. If there is one thing as a cause that also has one thing as its effect. In other words, there's a complete relationship always. So this is a very important point because that complete relationship is, for instance, of great importance from or about birth, birth as a human being. Birth as a human being always has aging and death following. Birth as a human being, as a specific condition, has specific results. Nobody gets away without it. It is immutable, invariable, and because of that, it's an absolute truth. There's nothing anyone can do about it. So these specific conditions, of course there are specific conditions also for birth, and we'll get into all of those. And everything, every single condition has a specific relationship to its effect. And this is important to know because otherwise it becomes diffuse. The teaching of the Buddha is never abstract he wanted to help us to get out of all suffering when he himself saw disease and death and old age and the suffering that that entailed that was the moment when he became inspired to find the cause and also the final elimination and cessation of Dukkha. He had been extremely protected from all unhappiness in his youth, and then it made even a greater impact on him. When he found the way out of Dukkha, he taught it just like all Buddhas do. And we are fortunate today that it's still available to us. Dependerizing is the framework which shows us what is happening to us and how we can be liberated from it. There is a doorway leading out. It shows us our actions and reactions and it shows us the constant recurrence of unsatisfactoriness. When we look at dependarising, we don't really see a beginning. It's actually a beginningless beginning, and it's an interlocking sequence. Usually, dependarising is shown with 12 factors, In this particular sutta, curiously enough, there are only nine, and there's speculation by the scholars why this is so. Some say that the reason is that there's more time and space left to give detailed explanation. We can accept that, since we don't know anything else. The usual exposition that the Buddha gave, however, contains twelve. And if you will look at the picture in the back of you later on, you will see it actually in a visual image. It's always a circular progression, and therefore there's really no beginning. However, we usually start explaining it with the first picture showing ignorance, depicted as an old woman who is blindfolded and with a stick in a dense forest trying to uh, find her way out. Ignorance does not mean stupidity. Ignorance means that we're ignoring the four noble truths. The noble truths of Dukkha, the noble truths of the arising of Dukkha, which is craving, the noble truths of the cessation of Dukkha, which is Nibbana, and the noble truth of the pathway to that cessation, which is the Noble Eightfold Path. We will discuss those in more detail later on. With ignorance as a condition, there are the volitional mental formations, our thought intentions, which make karma. they also called karma formations but they're really our thoughts. And your picture is usually a potter having nice pots and broken pots next to him, good and bad karma. With intentional mental formations as a condition, we have the effect of reverse consciousness, which means that within our psyche, The craving to be is embedded since we think of ourselves as an individual. Rebirth consciousness is usually depicted as a monkey hopping from treetop to treetop, rebirth after rebirth. With rebirth consciousness as a condition, there rise mentality and materiality, which is mind and body usually depicted as a boatman paddling a boat with a prone passenger in it. The boatman being the mind, the passenger being the body. Which means the mind is in charge. And we can easily experience that watching the breath. The body is breathing, but the mind is knowing. It can't be any other way. The mind can't breathe and the body know it. In walking meditation, the mind says start walking or stop walking and the body obeys that. This is actually a very important point at the first step of insight, knowing that there are two and that one of them is the most important. With mentality and materiality as a condition, the six senses arise. The six senses are usually depicted as a house with five windows and a door. The five are our senses of seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and the doorway, the mind base, our thought projections. With the six senses as a condition, feeling, a contact arises. The contact of the senses is... a matter with which we have to contend, we cannot be without them. At the moment, we have seeing, the sense contact of seeing, we have hearing, we have touching, sitting, and hopefully also the mind contact of thinking. Now it appears as if they all arise simultaneously, they don't. They're so fast that they rise one after the other in juxtaposition, but because it is so quick, it appears to be simultaneous. These sense contacts, any one of them, create feeling. So with the senses as a condition, the contact as the effect, and in the contact as a condition, there is feeling as a result. The feeling is usually depicted on the uh, picture in the back there as a man and woman embracing. The contact is usually depicted with a person having arrows shot into his eyes. Now, obviously, the first one is a contact which arouses unpleasant feeling The second one is a contact which arouses pleasant feeling. There are only three kinds. We either have pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. We're always concerned with pleasant and unpleasant. With that pleasant feeling arising from the embrace, the next step is craving. Now, the craving is usually depicted with a person sitting at a banquet table and shoveling food in. This is our step across the threshold because feeling is automatic, but craving is reaction. We very often see the 12 factors divided into three parts namely the past life which concerns our ignorance and our volitional mental formations, the making of karma. And because we have not yet let go of that I thought, it brings about our rebirth consciousness. So that's the fruit in the present life, which goes from rebirth consciousness to feeling. And then our present action is craving, which leads us to clinging. Clinging is depicted with a person being in a fruit tree, throwing down fruit into baskets which are ready, full to the top, and the fruit is all over the ground. We cling to the pleasantness, we cling to our being, and because of this clinging, there is becoming, or existence which is usually depicted as a pregnant woman. Now, from craving to that spot becoming or existence, it's usually mentioned as being the present life. And then, from that pregnancy arises birth, and from birth there is irrevocably death so that is then the next life so we have three lives depicted in this sequence of a circle but we can also say and quite easily follow that this is one life because with our ignorance we make karma formations and because of that there's a constant rebirth of the I thought and it keeps going so with death at the end and ignorance not being removed, the circle starts all over again. The Buddha said that at the end of this exposition, and so arises this whole mass of Dukkha. And we need not think that this is only to be divided into three parts. It's totally intertwined, and there's a result and then a response and there's an action and a reaction. And basically, this circular progression is a description of our inner motives. And our basic way of dealing with life is the source of our discontent. And because of that, the Buddha wants to show us the way out of that. One of the important personages In the Pali Canon, next to the Buddha, is Ananda. Ananda was the Buddha's cousin, the same age, and was his attendant for 25 years. This came about when at the age of 55, the Buddha said that he needed a permanent attendant who was reliable. Up to then he'd had several different ones. And none of them had really stayed with him and had been totally reliable. So he put it up to the monk's community to choose one for him because now he was getting older and needed a little more physical attention. Ananda was chosen. At first he didn't want to accept the job, but then he made two conditions. He said that one condition was that he would be able to listen to all the discourses And should he ever miss one, the Buddha would repeat it to him. And then, if he didn't understand something, he would be allowed to ask as many questions as necessary. And the second condition was that if the Buddha was invited for a meal, he would not pass that invitation on to Ananda. But if Ananda was invited, he could pass it on to the Buddha. These conditions were, of course, accepted by the Buddha, and Ananda put them so that this job he was given would not be construed to be of personal and material benefit to him, but would show quite clearly that he was using it for his spiritual growth. Ananda was totally devoted to the Buddha, and he was present at practically every discourse or heard it later, and because he asked many questions, we find many discourses in the Pali Canon given specifically to Ananda, so we're very fortunate that Ananda was a person who was questioning the wisdom and exposition of the Buddha in became a stream enter during his time with the Buddha, which is only the very first step of enlightenment and Although it makes it possible to understand the teaching much better, it still does not give full penetration. He also had a karmic connection with the Buddha because the Buddha said that a hundred thousand lifetimes ago he had made up his mind to become an attendant of the Buddha and had worked all through these lifetimes to perfect his purity. He had an excellent memory, was famous for his excellent memory. And when he questioned, he was able to retain the answers. This particular sutta that we are concerned with, the Mahanidana Sutta, is also an answer to a question by Ananda. And I'll read you the first part. Thus have I heard, which in Pali is This is Ananda reciting the Sutta at the great council of Arahants, the first great council, which was three months after the death of the Buddha. I will talk about that again at another time. On one occasion, the exalted one was living among the Kurus at the town of the Kurus named Sadamba. Then the Venerable Ananda approached the Exalted One, paid homage to him, and sat down to one side. Seated, he said to the Exalted One, It is wonderful and marvelous, Venerable Sir, how this dependent arising is so deep and appears so deep, yet to myself it seems as clear as clear can be. The Buddha answered, Do not say so, Ananda, do not say so, Ananda. This dependent arising is deep, and it appears deep. Because of not understanding and not penetrating this Dhamma Ananda, this generation has become like a tangled skein, like a knotted ball of thread, like matted rushes and reeds, and does not pass beyond samsara with its plane of misery, unfortunate destinations, and lower realms. The first thing that we learn here Is that Ananda makes a statement that it is clear to him the dependent arising, and the Buddha does not accept that. The Buddha accepts not that that statement, because it first of all appears to say that the depths of an uh, dependent arising is not as penetrating as he has taught it to be. That Ananda thinks that he can really understand it, although is only a stream entra. The word clear in Pali also means shallow. So the Buddha has to refute this statement in order to show again that depend arising is of the greatest depth. And also because Ananda, not being fully enlightened, could not possibly understand at all. Also what is interesting is that he talks about this generation as a tangled skein and knotted ball of thread matted rushes and reeds, not passing beyond samsara with its plane of misery, unfortunate destinations and lower realms. <coughs> that statement could very well be for our generation. There's no different. Each generation has that kind of difficulty. We're tangled up in our views and opinions and we're living in samsara with action and reaction. Samsara is the round of birth and death depicted actually visually in the circular progression of the dependent arising just as that picture on the wall behind you. So we are in the same boat as the people who were listening to the Buddha. Samsara has a plane of misery and unfortunate destinations and lower realms included because we cannot be sure that we will always have a pleasant abiding as a human being. We always have physical difficulties. We always have mental and emotional reactions, hopes, but we also have a great deal of negativity. And that negativity may take us to a much lower level of consciousness if we don't substitute it with the positive. So we are always in danger of losing our footing in this realm and going lower. This danger has to be seen and understood and accepted because it gives impetus to the practice. It was a very common occurrence at the time of the reciting of the suttas to give the place and the uh, township and the tribe where the sutta was given in order to help the other monks who were listening to recall the occasion so that they could, if necessary, correct the reciter. So in this case, the Buddha was living among the Kurus, a clan, and he was giving this discourse in a town called Kamasadamma, which was most likely their main town. And at that time, Ananda approached him. Now approaching him like this, the Buddha starts the exposition of this whole very central theme, the quintessence of the teaching. This quintessence of the teaching is taught by all Buddhas. the commentaries are an integral part of the teaching some of them actually part of the canon most of them given later the most famous one the path of purification by the venerable Buddha Gosser in the fifth century who used the whole of the teaching in order to consolidate it in an exposition of commentarial explanations. Now in that we will find that four depths are mentioned. The depth of this teaching divided into four. The four, first one being the meaning. And the meaning is that all causes have effect that the effects which we see cannot arise out of nowhere. There has to be a cause for them and a specific cause. So everything that happens has a specific origin, a source. And only if the source is eliminated can the effect be eliminated. The second depth is phenomena that because all conditions have effects all that we can see in the whole of the universe are phenomena arising from conditions and ceasing when the condition has stopped. We do not see actually individuality in the absolute truth but only phenomena this is where this teaching points to and therefore it is the most direct teaching to bring us to the understanding of non-self. The third depth is the teaching itself which is skillfully directed towards particular listeners, in this case Ananda. And also because the Buddha had the eloquence of description the words are giving a great impact. And the last of the four is penetration. The penetration of this teaching goes through the three characteristics impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and substancelessness to complete liberation. Negative thoughts can be Lessened as we practice their recognition and substitution with wholesome thoughts. But there will always be some until the third step of having realized Nibbana for oneself, one step before full enlightenment. The um, skill in meditative absorptions helps enormously because of the residual effect of uh, peace and joy. But there will be some to deal with. The more we practice, of course, the easier it becomes. Sorry? Is that a, is that a way to, to be mindful of the pain? Well, that depends. It depends on the level of mindfulness. If, uh, If the mindfulness is strong enough not to deteriorate into wanting to get rid of it, the pain, but just knowing it for what it is, and part of that, and that will be explained in this particular sutta also, but just knowing it for what it is, namely an unpleasant feeling that doesn't belong to one, then mindfulness is fine. But mindfulness is actually knowing only. And so it mustn't have any discrimination or judgment with it. But insight can be an adjunct to it. And the adjunct to that mindfulness of knowing only would be, it's just an unpleasant feeling, this is mine. And one can go back to the meditation subject. If that's what you mean with mindfulness, yes. If you mean something else, no. I don't know what you mean by it. just the way I said it, it's just an unpleasant feeling and it isn't mind. <coughs> but most people can't do that. So what you do with a unpleasant feeling of pain is this. You become aware of the fact how it has come about instead of disliking it, which is very detrimental to one's own well-being and is not useful on this path, and instead of impulsively and instinctively Moving, which is also not useful on this part, one gets to understanding how the pain has arisen. And the pain has arisen through sense contact, in this case touch contact, which is always followed by feeling, which I've just described on the 12-point depend origination. This touch contact, the sense contact, has feeling, and this feeling happens to be Unpleasant. And then comes, as a next step, the perception, which is labeling, which says pain. And then comes the mental volitional formation, which is the reaction, and which is our constant source of disquiet, anxiety, and unhappiness. The the reaction which says, I don't like it, it's not very nice, I wish I could sit better, or I'm going to need a chair, or I'm going home, or whatever else the reaction is. Now that is the usual way, and that needs to be looked at and seen objectively as being the four points of mind, the four parts, sorry, of mind, which are the four khandhas or four aggregates. And this is how our process always works. Now in meditation we do it differently. We see it and understand it. And instead of reacting with, I don't like it, I want to get away from it, we see it as just an unpleasant feeling, which doesn't have to be reacted to, but instead the mind can go back to the meditation subject. When the mind has said, I've had enough of this, I can't sit any longer, then to realize that that negativity is of absolutely no use, then move and become aware of the fact that you've been a victim of an unpleasant feeling. And we are always victims of our unpleasant feelings. But we don't notice it because we think it's justifiable. But here we know we are the victim of the unpleasant feeling. It's perfectly all right. The difference is knowing it from not knowing it. That's the main difference. So that's the way to deal with your unpleasant feelings, which arise and which we call pain. Is that clear? What isn't clear? All right. Anything else? And please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. think of your heart as a beautiful golden vessel which is filled with love warm and embracing (coughs) accepting and caring let this warmth of love embrace you be filled with that acceptance and the care Now offer this golden vessel filled with love to the person sitting nearest you. Filling him or her with acceptance and care and warmly embracing. Offer this golden vessel of your heart filled with love to everyone here. Accepting and caring for everyone. Warmly embracing everyone here. Offer this golden vessel filled with love to your parents, (coughs) giving them your acceptance and your care, embracing them warmly. Offer the golden vessel of your heart filled with love to those people who are nearest and dearest to you accepting them fully caring for them embracing them with the warmth of your heart this golden vessel filled with love to all your friends let them partake of the best that you have to offer Think of all the people you know and you meet in your everyday life. At work, when the shops, on the street, in the offices, banks, post office, wherever you meet people. Think of all these people. Offer them the golden vessel filled with your love. Make them aware of your care and acceptance. Warmly embrace them Think of anyone with whom you may have difficulties, or towards whom you are indifferent, and offer the golden vessel of love to that person also, making him or her feel your care and acceptance and your warm embrace. make the golden vessel of your heart filled with love as large as you can possibly make it, extending it further and further and then letting as many people enter into it and partake of the warmth of that love, the care and acceptance that they can find there. Make that vessel ever larger, as big as a house, as big as a city, as big as a state, as big as a country, encompassing the whole globe. allowing everyone entrance without discrimination And put your attention back on yourself. And feel the warmth of your love and the contentment of your acceptance of yourself filling you from head to toe. and anchor that golden vessel filled with love in your heart so that it may become one with it. May beings everywhere have love and acceptance for each other.